Um, well, uh, I know normally we kind of roll into a song or something to receive our offering, but we're going to do something a little bit different today with respect to uh, that part of our, our gathering. And uh, if you were here last week, you know that I started a series of messages called Changed. And we're going to be looking at certain biblical personalities each week that demonstrate that God changes people. I mean, fundamentally, core changes the hard drive on people so that we become different people, yeah? And I told you there are lots of examples of that in the scripture, but there are also lots of examples of that in this room. And so uh, I've been praying about, I wonder if there would be people in this room who have experienced this core, profound change who would be willing to share a little bit of their story with us. Would you like to hear that? Yeah. And so more than a decade ago, Doug and Michelle Duvall came wandering in here and uh, has just been a delight to us in so many ways. And they have two beautiful daughters now. And uh, 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 Doug is going to come and share. Doug is the, what's called the secretary of uh, our, a 12-step program that meets here on Thursday nights, and uh, he's going to come and share some of his story. Doug Duvall, come on up. Yeah, so Doug, uh, thanks for doing this. <laughs> and uh, I just want to ask you this, you know, a single question, in what ways has God really, you feel like God has really changed, changed your life? Um, well, you know, many of you know me. Uh, Thirteen years ago, um, I started coming in and out of this church, and um, you know, I'm a I'm a good example. Well, first of all, I'm a, a grateful recovered alcoholic, and uh, that's that's recovered, not cured. Um, <clears throat> Thirteen years ago, I started coming into this church, and uh, you know, was was in and out a lot, and. I'm the perfect example of self-will run riot. Um, you know, I was like the director of a play that, uh, you know, if I scripted everybody's script and they would do exactly as I told them and they would, uh, you know, the, everything would go off, you know, fine and, and everything would be fine in my world and your world and, you know, but unfortunately that's not the way it works. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was selfish, uh, self-centered, egotistical. Um, you know, I did things for myself and I... At an early age, I look. I knew I had a void, and I never knew what that void was. And I was always looking for an external source to fix an internal problem. I uh, never knew that. You know, drugs and alcohol were uh, the first thing that I found that did that. Um, I knew it was wrong. Um, you know, I, I had come to church looking for an answer. You know, I thought religion was going to fix me. Um, you know, I thought uh, if I came in here and sat back there and listened to you, you know this speaking every week, and, and uh, I read the book and, and did all those things that I was okay. Um, you know, that didn't fix me. I I've thought maybe if I be, became a good person um, and just did things for people and, and still continued to do what I did, that was going to fix me, and, and that didn't fix me. Um, I always had expectations. You know, I would do things for people, and I would expect things in result or in return. Um, you know, if I did this for you, you better do what I want you to do when I want you to do it. And, you know, it just didn't work out for me. Uh, a lot of years, I spent 22 years um, with my self-will running the show. Um, you know, in the very beginning, it was the work to get it 
was down here, and the relief, the sense of ease and comfort was up here, way up here. And then over time, it stopped working for me. Um, you know, that void was never filled, and the work to get it became up here, and the sense of ease and comfort from that was way down here. Um, you know, I come into these rooms, and I would see what people had, and, and I would see, uh, you know, people crying and laughing, and, and we would do the altar calls and pray, and I felt horrible back there, sitting back there, you know, and uh, knowing what I was doing. And I prayed, but I prayed for the wrong things. I never knew that I was praying the wrong way. I was asking for to not be sick the next day or to give me more money so I could drink the way I wanted to drink or, you know, give me new cars and, you know, I'll be better that way. You know, bigger house, that's going to fix me. Those things never fixed me, uh, and it just continued to get worse. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, I got to a point where physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, I was defeated. Um, I couldn't live that, that facade anymore. I was keeping up, you know, the, I was living a, a, a private life, a, a prison in my own hell, in my mind. And, I, you know, I would be the best employee I could be, but I was doing that just to cover up what was really going on inside me. Um, you know, I, I was trying to be a good father. I thought, you know, physically I was there for, you know, my wife and my kids, but mentally and spiritually I was not. Um, and that all came to a head, uh, you know, in 2011 on Valentine's Day. I found myself in the hospital as a consequence of the things I was doing to myself. And laying in that hospital bed, uh, God spoke to me. He said, are you done? He said, are you done trying to run the show? How's that working out for you? And I knew at that point that I had to do something, but I still didn't know how to get plugged in. I, was, I, I, was, I knew I had to make a decision to, to do something different, but I didn't know how. I'd been searching for all those years for the, re, for the way out. And um, I got out of there, and uh, I found a program uh, that is offered at this church. And um, as a result of getting into that program, um, you know, I was able to get uh, a person, you know, that, uh, that to show me the way, uh, a person that had been down my road, to show me what I needed to do uh, the right way, um, you know, and the first thing he taught me and showed me was that I have to turn my life and my will over to God 100%. If not, forget it. Um, you know, it was my stinking thinking that got me where I was at. And, uh, you know, no human power is possibly can, can remove the obsession that I had. Um, so... In doing that with this person, um, you know, I laid my life down. Um, at, you know, at that moment, the weight of the world was relieved. I mean, it was lifted off of my shoulders. I, thought I, I felt like for the first time I could actually breathe. Um, I didn't have to try to control everybody anymore. I didn't have to control my work, my life, my, my family, you know, um, everything in my life. And it was such a relief to be able to just lay that down and not have to deal with that anymore. Um, I felt like a kid again almost. And to be able to have, you know, Jesus Christ, um, you know, gave his life for that to happen in me was just overwhelming. Um, you know, so then I uh, started to, to work this program and with, my, with my person. And, um, you know, I got to, to real, uh, find out about me, you know, find out what was making me tick. Why was I doing these things? 
Um, you know, once I had made that decision to turn my life and my will over, then I got to look at myself and find out that, you know, in trying to control all these people all my life and them not responding the way I wanted them to, I was building up a lot of resentments, a lot of anger. And, you know, in my heart being filled with resentments and anger, it's not allowing the Holy Spirit to come in. They can't occupy the same space. I didn't know how to release all that. I, did, I didn't even realize I had that much anger and resentment in me until I, I learned this through the process. But once I learned that, I was shown a way to remove it, allow the Holy Spirit to come into me, and now I have a daily toolkit of how to keep those resentments and that anger from filling me up again. Um, you know, I don't, have to, uh, I don't have to allow other people's actions towards me run my life anymore. And I'm able to, I made that decision to let God run my will in my life, and that's exactly what I, I have happen every morning. When I get up in the morning, first thing I say when I open my eyes is, God, I offer myself to you to build with me and do with me what you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self so I may better do your will. Take away all of my difficulties so that victory over them may bear witness to those that I may help of your love, your power, and your way of life. And... That's how I start my day every day. Um, I, I read a daily devotional um, that, you know, my great friend uh, got me involved with. Um, I got to stay centered in the center of the boat. You know, it's like being on a, on a boat. If I get towards the edge and the waves start get rocking, I'm going to fall off. I don't want to fall off the boat. I want to live, uh, you know, the way that God wants me to live for my family and my friends. Um, you know, every day I... I try to give back what I have been given. Um, it's better than any drug or alcohol I could ever imagine. The more that I give God, the more love that I give, the more I get back. And, you know, I do things today like, um, you know, try to help other people that are coming looking for help. The newcomer is the most important person in the room. Um, you know, to, to see somebody come in that's sick and suffering and reach out to them and grab them up and give them a hug and tell them that, you know, we love you, we're not here to judge you. Um, you know, I'm right there where you were at. Um, you know, that's, that's why we're here. I go into prisons. Uh, we go into um, treatment centers. Uh, we talk to, you know, people that are new uh, and show them that there is a way. You know, I, I was at a place where we call the jumping off point. It was, I thought it was the end of my life. I couldn't imagine living my life the way it was, or I couldn't imagine moving forward. So it, it was the end. Uh, and I found... The, that hopelessness, I found a way out of that. And I love to, you know, I'd love to be able to share that with other people and show them that there is hope, there's a way out. Um, you know, I pray every day for my character defects to be removed. Um, you know, God doesn't remove them all. He doesn't want them all removed. But he knows which ones I need to keep, and, and I can use them as a positive instead of a negative. Um, he has removed some, and my wife appreciates that. Um, you know, but... It's, I mean, it's just really overwhelming what God can do. And I'm, I'm the kind of person that never, ever thought that this was for me. I never would have walked through that door and said, you know what, I'm different. You know, I'm different than that. You know, I'm glad this works for you guys, but that's not going to work for me because my, my story is unique. You know, my feelings unique. You know, we're all the same. We all have the same, you know, God is the relief. He has the relief for all of it. And it's just to have this and to have found this, um, you know, for God to relieve me uh, has just been a major blessing for me and my family. So I'd like to thank, thank you. Love you too.
Yeah. So does God change people? Thanks, Doug. The best part about Doug is Michelle. <laughs> no, you did you did it. You, you. And uh, the group that Doug's a part of meets here on Thursday nights, and so his wife Michelle makes the cookies. And uh, yeah, and so in my box is uh, outside my office is a baggie every Thursday night. Of, so I look forward to that. So you guys can meet here as long as you want. so many examples in the Bible of people whom God has changed at the core. You know, I, I just, I think we're all in agreement that we can make certain improvements in our lives by trying, right? I mean, certain improvements. We can make some progress, but at the core is where we need change. It's my secret self, you know, the part I don't want you to know about. That's the thing that I want God to continue to change. It's that secret part of us that's so, so personal and so internal. And, and it's, it's the place from which our character flows that needs to be changed by God. So we've been looking in the Bible, started looking last week at the Bible, looked at different... Uh, you know, just I told you that there are so many different examples of people in the Bible whose lives have been changed by God, and they, they all share these common traits. First of all, that God changed their lives. God did the changing. There is a part that we play in it, of course, but God does the rewriting of the hard drive. God gets the crossed wires straightened out. God has to do the changing, or we're still the same person, right? We're just trying differently, but we're still at the core, the same person. And the other thing that I suggested to you about all these personalities in the Bible whom God has changed so essentially is that, that uh, there was something already happening in their lives that God used to connect with them to make the change. And so these two things are meant to be good news because we have everything we need for this change to occur. And uh, that me- meaning we have God, right? <laughs> Here he is, so he does the changing. And that there's already something on board in you that God will connect with to catalyze the change. And I'm sure if we could hear, you know, Doug's story some more, he could talk about the things that God used that were already there to get his attention and to utilize them to begin to make these fundamental changes inside of him. Last week we looked at Abraham, and uh, actually, we encountered him as Abram, this idol worshiper, and left him as Abraham, as if we look at the Bible. And he changes from being this idol worshiper to this one through whom all the world will be blessed because Jesus comes from his line. That's a pretty big change. And we saw last week that the thing that God used in his life was what? Do I need to do that whole message again? Sure. Oh, you weren't here? Okay. Sure, why not? It was his obedience, remember? Oh, yeah. 
It was his obedience. It was that God said to Abram, he said, I want you to leave the land where you are and go here, and I will make a change. Remember? Now I remember now. And uh, I know you've been busy obeying all week, so you forgot what it was. And then the next verse is that, so Abram left. And God used this simple act of obedience to make the change. And so the lesson there is that inside of us, you know, God's always stirring, isn't he? He's stirring towards something and saying, come here, come here, come here. And as we obey, changes, changes, fundamental changes occur. Well, today I want to look at Joseph. And uh, just to to clarify, uh, for those of you who are newer to the Bible, uh, and I love that you're here, you got to know this, that if... If the Bible is not familiar to you, I'm really so glad that you're here. In fact, that's the reason Karen and I are here, is for you. We simply tolerate these other Christian people, and we're here for you. And uh, so let me just start by clarifying something. When I say Joseph, uh, some of you may think, oh, you mean like Jesus' dad or Jesus' stepdad or however you say that, you know. No, this is a different Joseph. There are two main characters in the Bible named Joseph, and one is in fact Jesus' dad, or Jesus, Mary's husband, I guess is what you'd say. Um, But the other is a Joseph way before him, about a thousand years before him, and he was one of the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So now that starts to sound a little familiar, right? Okay. So this is the Joseph that we're talking about, and I want to just talk for just a couple of minutes about Joseph and Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to uh, Genesis 50. And if you don't have one, uh, we're going to put it up on the screen behind me so you can see what I'm talking about. But essentially, the whole last third of the book of Genesis is devoted to the life of this character named Joseph. We meet him as a 17-year-old who comes and talks to his brothers about these dreams that he's having, about how you know they're all going to bow down to him, and it didn't go very well. And so his brothers were very mad and very jealous and really offended by the things that he kept saying. I mean, he's coming, hey, I had this dream, and, you know, I was this this sheaf of wheat, and you all were sheaves of wheat, and you all bowed down to me. What do you all think about that? Well, what do you, these are all older brothers. I mean, he wasn't strong on intelligence, I don't think, just to say these things. But so what happened was they said, we got to get rid of this guy. And so how are we going to get rid of him? Because our father loves him so much. And so they made up this big lie. And first they threw him into the bottom of a cistern. And a cistern is like an underground container, a huge underground container into which uh, drinking water was held. Only this was dry. And so they threw him into this thing to lock him up and figure out what they were going to do. Well, what they did then is these Ishmaelites, which... uh, are, you know, descendants of Ishmael, which effectively would have been Muslims coming through, they sold this Jewish boy to the Muslims. And there was no love lost between these people already, so this was not an upgrade for him. And so he gets sold, and they take him to Egypt. And they take him to Egypt and sell him to the Egyptians. And then they go back and tell their dad. They, may, they, 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 they rip up his clothes and put some blood on it and say, ah, oh, Bad news on Joseph, you know, like he got torn up by a lion or a wild animal or something. Father Jacob grieves and the sons think they get away with it. Yeah, okay, we got rid of the punk, you know, and we got away with it. And as the story goes on then, but God is doing something in Joseph's life. He's changing him 
in Joseph's life in Egypt, and he's using him in the most remarkable ways. And he's showing him favor so that Joseph is like moving up, way up in the chain of command and accomplishment and success in Egypt. Uh, some bad things happen, and then he comes back from them. But So we start with this 17, arrogant, proud 17-year-old taking off his brothers, gets thrown to the bottom of a cistern. We end with Joseph way up here in the upper echelon of Pharaoh's government, and he's actually being used by God to collect enough food so that thousands upon thousands of people do not die because of an impending famine. Okay, So that's the general sketch of this. Well, in the process then, the famine comes and the brothers then go to Egypt because they hear they have food. You feeling the drama? Anybody? See, you old crusty Christians, you already know how this goes. You go, I know what he's going to say next. But some of you are going, seriously? And then? And then? And then? Yeah, I love you guys better. <laughs> I know. And so... So these brothers go to Egypt to get some food because they're going to die. So they go to Egypt to get some food. And then, you know, Joseph's like, ah, holy smokes, those are my brothers, you know. But they don't recognize him because he's all Egyptian now, you know. And, uh, and so they don't recognize him. And so Joseph hides his presence, you know, and he kind of does a couple of cool things, you know. To, and then eventually they all come back together and the father comes to Egypt, Jacob, and it's like this weepy, wonderful reunion. Well, what I'm about to read for you is right after dad dies then. And these brothers are like, now that dad's gone, what's going to happen, right? What's Joseph going to do? When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. What is up with these guys? I mean, they're just wrong to the core, aren't they? So they try to set it up. Your father has said these things. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins of the wrongs they have committed, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they're setting this thing up so that they don't, you know, so that Joseph doesn't go, now that dad's gone, you know, you guys are going to get what you deserve. But they say that his dad said, now please forgive the sins of the servants of God, uh, uh, the God of your father. Wow. Playing the trump card, you know, the God of your father. Wow, it doesn't get any worse than that. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. You know, can't you just imagine the motivation behind his weeping? It's like, are these brothers ever going to get it? They continue, they continue with this stuff. And his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I don't have any right to judge you. You intended to harm me, catch this, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What an amazing change. And you have to, you have to make a couple of observations. And the first one, really, is that uh, Joseph's positional external positional change in society was really inversely proportional to his internal character change. Huh? What do I mean by that? Okay, so the dominant trait of of Joseph's character when we meet him in Genesis 37 is what? Pride and arrogance, right? 
It's kind of like what Doug was talking about. It's that self-will, pride and arrogance. That's where we meet him. So he's up here. I'm up here and y'all are down there. But where is he? Externally, he's in the bottom of a cistern. And so there's this inverse, proportion, inverse relationship that as his position in society rises, he loses his pride and arrogance and becomes humbled. You catching that? So that there's a humility that comes in the place of where there was pride and where there was arrogance. And it was God using the embrace you know, uh, of, of this humility, this humbling, that enabled God to make these changes in Joseph's life. Because we can be sure that the longer we're proud and arrogant and say, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to do it myself, get off my back, we can absolutely ensure that we will not change at the core. We're going to be the same person. But that as we come to the place of humility and say, you know, I'm powerless to do any of this myself, would you come and do it in me? Would you come and do it in me? And we recognize that with a kind of, kind of unbridled humility, then God comes and he has space to work, right? You know, the Bible says in Proverbs, and it says twice, it's repeated twice in the New Testament, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Did you catch that? So come on, especially we guys, do we really expect God to change us? Living life like this? Come on, chip on the shoulder. Do we really, see, you know, that's the enemy's territory is just to keep us there. I have a right to feel this way. As long as we can be persuaded of that, then we stay in that unchanged place. But uh, the other thing you should notice here, the other observation is that I think God used Joseph's deep embrace of the goodness of God to catalyze these amazing changes in his life. You know, what did God use in Joseph's life? It looked like, you know, that, uh, next one, it looked like that uh, in Joseph's case, God used the embrace of his goodness to catalyze these amazing changes. There's a scripture here where it says, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? He said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And what kind of, what kind of powerful embrace is this? And I kind of get this sense, if you read it backwards then, I kind of get the sense that I want to believe that Joseph was in the bottom of the cistern going, I know this looks bad, but God's good. I know this looks bad. I wonder what God's going to do. And he had this consistent embrace of the goodness of God. I know there's a famine coming, but God's good. What could we do to get ready? I know I've just been sold into slavery. I wonder where we're going. And not like a positive thinking kind of thing, but in a genuine, authentic embrace of the goodness of God, that in any and every situation, God's still good. That in any and every situation we face, we have a choice, and we can, we can focus on the yuckiness of it, we can focus on the evil of it, we can focus on the horror of it, or we can ask the question, God, I know you're still good. Can you show me your goodness in the midst of this? Some of you are living examples of that. So Joseph went through a whole bunch of tough times. Falsely accused in Egypt, thrown into prison for something he didn't do, forsaken by the guys he got out, helped get out of prison, 
And yet, all the time he's going, yeah, but God's good. So his brothers come, and they say, oh, we're so ba-da-da, we're your slaves. And he goes, look, I know you intended to harm me, but what the devil means for harm, God will use for good. Catch hold of that. Catch hold of that, church. What the enemy means for harm in your life, God will use for good. But it requires an embrace of that perspective of the goodness of God. And again, I don't mean it as a platitude like, God's good all the time. (laughs) Come on. We trivialize the gospel. We trivialize the power of God with those kind of things. I'm not criticizing you for saying those things. You just get what I'm feeling, right? That it's so much deeper. It's deeper. The embrace, the choice to embrace the goodness of God and saying, God, how how are you being good right now? You know, when Doug was in the hospital bed, God was somehow good there. That when any of us had our head in the toilets praying to Ralph the porcelain God. <laughs> Ralph! Don't look at me like you haven't been there. Somehow in the midst of that horror, somehow in the midst of that misery, somehow in the midst of I can't wait to tonight so I can drink, so I can use, so I can fill in the blank. In the midst of that, God was good. He was standing right there waiting to be good, waiting for you to embrace his goodness. And it's in that embrace that the life begins to change. So what do you want to do? Let's see what God wants to do. Lord, uh, what do you want to do here, Lord? You've uh, intrigued us with the possibility of core change. But we're a little bit afraid to believe it because we've not always, when we've not really ever been successful in truly changing ourselves. And so, so this feels risky. So we just start, start in the context of this gathering and, and just ask you, where do you want to begin? I mean, you love us the way we are. It's not a question of changing us so you can love us. So where do you want to begin to change us so we can live in the midst of your love and begin to fully live and stop, stop marching through the death pattern? So we invite you to come, Lord. And I invite you to touch every heart in this room and connect in every way with ways you want to connect. And I pray, you know my heart, Lord, is for the people who don't know you yet, the people who haven't come to that place of entering into relationship with you through your son Jesus. And I pray for them most. I just feel they're in the deepest, gravest peril. And I just pray for them, Father God, that today would be the day that they turn their lives to you and say, Jesus, come into my heart as my Lord and my Savior. I pray that your Holy Spirit will bring that to happen in the lives that are ready for that. I pray for every person in here, Lord, no matter which side of that line they might consider themselves to be on, I pray that your Holy Spirit will bless them with some touch from you that shows them that you are real, that shows them that you love them. And so we invite you into this room now pour out your kindness on us, Lord, and your goodness, knowing that your kindness leads to repentance and your 
your kindness is all the only thing that's going to save us, Lord, because if, if your wrath comes, we're dead. And so we thank you for satisfying all of that on the cross. And, and so we, we stand in the place where we say, would you pour out your, your loving kindness on us this morning? I pray for a release for the captives, for those who totally dialed in with Doug's words and uh, are ready you know, are ready to just humble themselves before you and, and admit they're, that they are powerless. To begin the walk that you have for them and begin to order their steps toward the places of freedom and recovery, fullness of life. Bless them, I pray for every person here who's living in some kind of personal hell today or, or just some extreme difficulty. I pray that your power, your Holy Spirit, will come and meet them. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and move among us in healing and power and wonder and grace now. In Jesus' name.